All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have one with you or did not bring one, there should be a black hardback underneath a seat around you. We welcome you to uh, grab one of those and open up with us. We'll be in Acts chapter 20. We are working our way through the book of Acts. We are just about in the home stretch here, 28 chapters in Acts, and we will go through chapter 20 this morning. We'll take a break in Acts starting next week. So this will be our last time in Acts, last Sunday in Acts for at least a few weeks. Next week we'll start a three-part Christmas series on the Incarnation, and so I will do that next Sunday. Then on our Christmas Eve service, which I hope you have in your calendars, uh, that will be Monday evening, the 24th at 7 p.m. It's always one of our, I think, more special services of the year. So it'll be the 24th uh, at 7 p.m. again, and then we'll wrap up our Christmas series on December 30th. So we'll we'll go through Acts 20 this morning, and, and then we'll take a break for at least a few weeks. Um, but we're in an interesting passage, um, and, and you'll see why there's at least one story in here that's one of my favorites to tell. Okay, So you're going to for sure want to pay attention until we get to this story, Okay, because in fact it's about paying attention when people are preaching. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll get to Acts 20. Uh, before we do, some of you know, okay. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine earlier this week, and we were talking about uh, kind of the conversations that go on in the church around this time of the year when you hit kind of Christmas time. And you get, uh, if you watch the news or if you're in these kind of circles, you get these kind of phrases, right? I mean, the war on Christmas starts to come up. And in particular, the church kind of rallies all of its energy and all of its efforts behind making sure that everybody says Merry Christmas. Okay, not Happy Holidays, pagans. (laughs) Not Seasons Greetings, Gentiles. All right, but Merry Christmas. And and we were just kind of lamenting, as it often is in the church, I mean, we have these kind of displacement activities. What I mean by that is we rally our energy and our efforts around something that's really in the end not that big of a deal, and really in the end is probably a way of displacing our energy or efforts so that we don't have to deal with things that maybe do need to be addressed or do need to be changed. And so a big one that comes to mind is homosexuality, right? And so, I mean, Christians have kind of dug their heels in the sound, sand about homosexuality, and we're going to make a scene on this, probably as we lose the battle. I'm not sure we're going to win that one culturally, okay? But we make a scene about it, for right or for wrong, um, but it, it often serves as a displacement activity for the fact that the church, for years now, has already lost the battle to divorce, right? Probably not an argument. That's a much bigger threat to the traditional family unit that the church has wholesale just jumped into. That would be something the church needs to start talking about and start thinking about and start taking a look at. But it would involve looking at ourselves, looking in the mirror. And that's uncomfortable and that's painful and I get it. So instead we focus our energies around often something that doesn't bother us, something that's not threatening to us, right? So we do this, I think, with, with Christmas... That's just an example, right? Merry Christmas, uh, instead of season's greetings, happy holidays, that kind of thing. When, when there are things to change about Christmas time. I mean, there are serious things that we need to take a look at and maybe perhaps change about the way we celebrate and live as Christians during this season of life. Um, consumerism, materialism, that kind of thing, which I think would run way deeper than any of us might realize. But as long as we can keep being upset at people for saying season's greetings, happy holidays... We never have to sit down and go, what's the content behind Merry Christmas? How, how would I really live this out if I was actually following this poor crucified Jewish man? If he really was the Christ, if he really was the Messiah. You have these kind of displacement activities. And we were wondering how we could perhaps as the church live in a kind of countercultural way 
uh, come Christmas time. And one of the things uh, he brought up, um, he's from a more high church tradition. I'm from more low church. So I'm a white kid from the evangelical ghetto, okay? So we don't have church calendar. We don't have church prayers. We just kind of go with whatever we feel like at the moment. And we have the big ones. We have Christmas, Easter, that kind of stuff. Um, but, but he mentioned the season of Advent. And so we've tried to kind of hit on Advent more or less this year as, as I've been kind of learning about it. And Advent is interesting because according to the church calendar, so, so the church for the past couple thousand years has come up with a calendar um, where, where Christians kind of worship all together in these regular seasons and rhythms. And there's this season called Advent that we're in. So according to, to really the Orthodox Christian church over history, you and I should not be celebrating Christmas right now. It is not yet Christmas. And it's not just that you shouldn't celebrate it, just wait. It's that you're doing something else right now. And that something else is called Advent. It's, it's four weeks before Christmas starts. And Advent is a very important part over the church's history of worship, of being a Christian, of preparing for and properly celebrating Christmas. And so Advent, again, would be the four weeks before Christmas starts. It's a, it's a period where you wait and you expect and you long. And there are two different ways kind of to experience Advent. Uh, some people kind of do Advent, celebrate Advent with more of a penitential stance. So they're more repentant. They fast. They mourn. Kind of like a Lent type season. And then others are a little bit more joyful. It's kind of this calm expectation, this longing, this sitting in silence and, and experiencing a fresh of people calling out for God to show up and desperately needing him to show up. And then Advent ends on Christmas Eve when the sun goes down when the Jewish day would start, which is why there are Christmas Eve candlelight services, like on the 24th at 7 p.m. if that's on your calendar. <laughs> and that's, according to the church, when Christmas begins. And then you get the 12 days of Christmas, which was never explained to me as a child, okay? But that's what the 12, the 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas. And then you actually get 12 days of feasting. And so Americans kind of front load the Christmas celebration, okay? But the church kind of back loads it, all right? You hold out until Christmas Day, and then you just go crazy for 12 days, all right? Feasting, laughing, dancing if you're not Baptist. <laughs> and you just kind of enjoy yourself and it ends on January 6th with Epiphany and we were wondering if that would be maybe a, a way to live counterculturally and, and maybe return some of our roots as Christians and, and that would mean we're in the third Sunday of Advent we're in this third Sunday of, of waiting and longing and expecting of experiencing the darkness that, that's around us and calling out to a God to show up and then Friday happens there's shootings Children are killed. And it's a surprise to us, probably, because I think for most of us in, in kind of the Western world, we, for the most part, imagine the world is pretty good, and every now and then there's a blip on the radar. And you just kind of have to make sure that gets worked out, and then we'll go back to being pretty good, right? Because we don't live in the war-stricken areas of the world. We don't see poverty and, and people starving in front of us every day. We don't see kind of the reality of the world around us, which is evil still out there, and it's still a four-letter word. Right? I mean, it's still there. It's still confronting us. But it, it surprises us sometimes because we, we don't really see it. And then when it surprises us, it hits us hard, as it should. I mean, there's something terrible and tragic and something heavy about a kid himself walking into elementary school and, and shooting other children. And there's something that makes you sit down and, and, and think about God and think about Jesus, think about your role in this whole story. There's something that I think, if, if some of us are honest, makes you wonder, makes you doubt. 
And as you start to kind of reconsider the basics of what's happening here, when we're confronted with the, the reality of evil in the world around us. And you, you hear this expression, if you're paying attention, you'll hear that, um, and it's kind of trite, kind of trivial, but, but this kind of puts a damper on the Christmas season, particularly for this community, right? All ready for Christmas, celebrating Christmas, have that started, and then you have these, these deaths. And, and one of the psychologists working in the area says, one of the most common things you see with these families now is they're taking down their Christmas directions, uh, or decorations, and they're uh, taking all the Christmas stuff kind of out of their house. They've canceled kind of Christmas for the year. And while there's never a good time, for a tragedy to happen. I mean, there's never a convenient time for that kind of thing to, to take, take place. I do think the season of Advent is well-equipped to help us experience and go forward in the midst of this tragedy. The season of not celebrating, but the season of waiting and of longing and of seeing and calling out, of pleading. Advent is this celebration of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And what it does for us, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but what it does is it puts us in history. It helps us find our place in the story, in the great story of God and of creation. You see, the scriptures think that history is this linear thing. It's a progression. It's not this cyclical, just kind of happenstance of events. But it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. It's going somewhere. So shootings at an elementary school aren't just something that kind of happen every now and then, and it's just kind of random. They just kind of get tossed in the bucket and never get sorted out. But they take their place in a story where things eventually will be made right, where things eventually will be taken account of, where everything eventually gets sorted out. It's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what Advent does is it says, look around you and appreciate where you are in the story. It will help you make sense of things. It will help you worship. It will help you understand and celebrate the coming of the Savior. And then long for his second coming. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 20. Uh, and, and what we're going to see here is Paul is finishing up his missionary activities. Okay, And so he's on his way uh, out. I mean, he's pretty much done building and starting and developing these churches. So we're going to see this transition in the book of Acts. And he's going to be real introspective here and kind of look back on the work that he's done. He's going to think about his own journey, his own story, and then he's going to try to situate for one last time his churches in the big story of God and the history of what God's doing in creation. So I want us to walk down this road with him, okay? We'll pick it up Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And we read, after the uproar ceased. So we're talking about the uproar in Ephesus. Remember? Big riot, they're in this big stadium, they're all cheering. Some of them don't know what they're yelling about, but they're there and they're yelling. Okay, after this ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions that had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, FYI, probably where he wrote the book of Romans, right here in verse 3. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, and Tychus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Everybody with me? You have the mental map in your head, right? Okay, if you don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Um, Yeah, you've got all these locations and dates listed right after one another. And what this looks like is a lot like these ancient travel epics, these stories that were told. So the Odyssey by Homer would be one of them. Basically what's happening here is Paul is kind of portrayed as the hero. He's going from town to town to town. Again, on this mission, on this journey. 
Now here we get to one of the best stories in the Bible, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at a window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and bent over and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Okay, so just so we're all paying attention, and for the record here, what the Bible just taught you is that if you fall asleep while I'm preaching, God will kill you. I think that's all we need. All right, let's do communion. This is good. This is good stuff. I hope you're taking notes, underlining, highlighting. This is my life verse. Eutychus <laughs> actually, in, it means lucky in Greek. Uh, perhaps not the luckiest man in the world, but perhaps lucky because in verse 11, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread, or I'm sorry, verse 10, Paul went down, bent over him, taking him his arm, said, do not be alarmed for his life. So Paul brings him back to dead. Cool parlor trick. In verse 11, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. I don't know what's funnier, that this kid, he probably went 9 to 14 years old, falls out of a third story window and dies because he falls asleep while Paul's preaching, or that after Paul brings him back to life, he goes back up and just starts again. He's like, where did I leave off? We still got six hours ahead of us, okay? I mean, this does not deter him at all. I mean, imagine right now if Michelle falls asleep, okay, and just like we've learned... Dead. All right. God kills her. This is a pretty traumatic moment in our church's life. We're all wondering who's going to sing the fourth and fifth song. Okay. What's going to happen when that gets around our service? So I come over. Service has stopped at this point, And I raise Michelle from the dead. Again, pretty dramatic episode in our life. Jake's wondering, how do we market this? What's the PR strategy? Okay. Local pastor brings back girl from the dead. But then imagine that after all of that ruckus, I'm like, take a seat, guys. We're in the middle of the sermon, okay? I've still got three points left. He, he keeps preaching uh, until daybreak, and then they took the youth away alive, and we're not a little comforted, okay? So Eutychus perhaps is lucky after all, but he's not going to make that mistake again. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For this, catch this, he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So here's what you need to grab out of this, okay, as we're tracking along through the story in Acts Paul has a mission. He has a goal directly in front of him. The goal is now, after setting up these churches in this kind of area of the world, to go to Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of details about why he's going to Jerusalem, but in his other letters, in the Corinthian Correspondence, and then in the book of Romans, Paul tells us why he's going to Jerusalem, and then why he's so emphatic about having to go to Jerusalem. He is on his way to take a large sum of money to the church in Jerusalem. It's a tithe of sorts from all of the Gentile churches that he started. And Paul thinks this is very, very important business. He thinks, one, it confirms the fact that Gentile churches, you and I, are indeed part of God's people. 
And then two, he thinks he himself is playing a pivotal role in end time, last time, eschatological prophecy. So there are all these prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures that on the last day, when the, when the king came and, and the kingdom was established, that the Gentiles would flock to Jerusalem and worship. And Paul perhaps sees himself leading that part of the prophecy. Watch the Gentiles symbolically come to Jerusalem and present their tithe, present their worship. Now, Paul has plans once he gets to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Rome and then to Spain, where no one else has gone before. But for now, he's got this mission. He's got this goal. He's going to Jerusalem. And he wants to get there um, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul, this is his farewell address. And he's going to get really introspective, retrospective. This is a very unique look at Paul that we get in the scriptures. Verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained, controlled, provoked by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Two things to notice here. One, this is kind of this uh, kind of foreshadowing here. There is going to be imprisonment and afflictions waiting for Paul in Jerusalem and for the rest of his life. Okay, we've seen in the last, uh, last week, Paul's success as a minister is for the most part over. His flourishing churches, that kind of thing. Most of his writing is done. By this point, from here on out, it's going to be pretty hard sailing, literally and metaphorically, for Paul. Okay? The second thing to notice is this is a much different faith than the faith that I think most of us, including myself, inhabit oftentimes. What Paul just did here is he has destination X in front of him. He says, I want to go to Jerusalem and do this thing. And the Holy Spirit tells him, he realizes, if I go there, bad things are waiting for me. And he speeds up even more. He's even more determined to go. Now I can tell you how discerning God's will happens in my life, okay? If I've got fork in the road, destination A, destination X, and on one end, I end up in prison and dead, and on the other end, I'm healthy and comfortable, guess what I just discerned God's will for me was? (laughs) To go where I'm comfortable and healthy and safe. And I can come up with 30 reasons to rationalize. Well, I'll be able to do more there. I'll be able to be more effective as a minister, things of that nature. But Paul, since the Spirit's calling and suffering is no, is no problem for him. In fact, we'll see what he says about suffering. He says, I, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I can finish my course, my race, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of the grace of God. This would be a, a, like a good little memory verse here. Paul says that my life itself doesn't mean much to me. What, what means a lot to me is to do what God has called me to do. To finish my small part in his work of redemption. And that's, that's all my mind's set on. If I can do that, 
from beatings, afflictions, imprisonments, shame, whatever may come, I'm fine. Paul has this kind of single-minded focus on fulfilling his, his duty, his, his mission, his, his purpose that, that Christ has given him. Now again, you've got this kind of travel narrative starting to work in the book of Acts. Now Luke loves to do this, okay? In the Gospel of Luke, you also have a travel narrative. He, he frames the story, he tells the story in terms of geography. So the Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus' journey from Galilee up north to Jerusalem down south. Galilee is where Jesus grows up, where he ministers for two or three years. Jerusalem is where he dies. Most of the Gospels focus on Jesus in Galilee. And then in a very quick amount of time, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's being killed. Luke puts all of his literary effort into the in-between here, into watching Jesus as he walks toward Jerusalem. And as he tells people, I'm going to be suffering in Jerusalem, and he keeps walking. And as he gets distracted by crowds and opportunities to preach and to heal, and he continually sets his face toward Jerusalem and keeps walking. Now we see Paul's story start to take the same shape. He's going to Jerusalem, and more than that, he's going to Rome. That'll be eventually Paul's final destination of sorts. The ends of the world from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Paul's going to take the gospel to, to Rome. You have this travel narrative. There's something I think about travel narratives, about journeys that excites us, that helps us situate our own lives, even when we don't partake in that same kind of action. So think of, I mean, Hobbit just came out. Think of Lord of the Rings, right? Basically, it's nine hours of people walking. <laughs> they walk for three hours, and they walk for three more hours, and they walk for three hours, they got there. And we're enthralled. And the, I mean, the interesting thing is we don't do that. I mean, you might think someone who that's part of their life. They go on these kind of adventures, and they meet new people, and they encounter struggles and, and temptations, but they keep journeying to their final destination. They might resonate with that. You and I sit in the same office every day. We rarely travel out of the city. Even when we do travel, it's not that kind of journey destination, don't know where we're going, what will happen there. But that captivates us. And that serves as often a really good metaphor for our own lives how we see our own situations, how we see our own struggles, how we see our own purposes and our own missions. The scriptures are full of this. I mean, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's this travel narrative, it's this journey from the slavery in Egypt to the promised land. I mean, this is the Exodus, one of the, the, the big kind of salvation story of the Old Testament. And then as Luke tells the story of Jesus, he, he tells the story of a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then we tell the story of Paul. He tells you of a journey from the churches he starts to Jerusalem, then to Rome. Well, he'll be in prison and, and perhaps die. We, we don't know exactly. We'll talk about that when we get there. Advent, again, is about, particular, uh, about placing us, about allowing us to understand and see where we are in our own story, in our own journey, and where we are in the, the larger journey that is God's kind of redemption in the history of what he's accomplishing among us. And Paul says, if, if I can just do my part, imprisonment, afflictions, they don't mean much to me. Now he says this, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. They told him, you're not going to see me again. Spent this much work. I mean, he's been at Ephesus for two years. Had this big riot scene, right? And he's saying, this is the last time we will talk. 
saying goodbye to them. It's a sad scene. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Alright, this phrase, whole counsel of God, what this is referring to is the meta-narrative. It's referring to the, the big story, the big journey that creation itself is on. Okay, so you, you have God creating a good world. That good world gets enslaved into evil through the, the rebellion of humans, God's co-rulers. And then you have God coming and, and forming a covenant community with Abraham. Just as 12 and saying, through you, Abraham and Israel, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to rescue this. I'm going to redeem my creation. I'm going to make this new again. And then you have Jesus, the Messiah, coming as the fulfillment of this covenant community. Then you have the church being established and inaugurated and the Gentiles flowing in. You have the spirit being given to the church. You have the hope that Jesus one day will come again, his second coming. You have the hope of new heavens and new earth, resurrection, of God finishing his, his project, his work of justice and redemption. And Paul says, while well, I was with you, I helped you see where you are in the story, in the journey of creation, so that you can make sense of your own stories and your own journeys. And so when we talk about Advent, and we talk about how Advent helps us see where we are, Advent helps us by locating us on the map of what's happening in history. When children get shot in an elementary school, it takes on a different meaning, and it takes on a different flavor depending on where you are depending on what's coming in the future, depending on what's come before. We've talked about this a lot at the church, right? The narrative that you're in helps you interpret everything around you. Again, if you're in a narrative where history has no linear progression, where we're not moving toward anything, where there's not this God who's eventually going to fix all things, then kids getting shot in a school breaks you, puts you on your knees, and, and kind of creates this kind of um, lost cause attitude in you. But if you're in the season of Advent, and Advent's doing four things to you. First, it's giving you the invitation to experience the longing the Israelites had before Jesus' first coming. When they're in exile. When there's really no hope. Enslaved, surrounded on every side, all the promises look like they've been abandoned. It looks like God has forgotten them. Read Psalm 89 if you want to feel the anguish the Israelites felt. It helps us experience that and and experience that longing and those prayers. And then it helps us to experience and celebrate the fact that in that darkness, a light came. The incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel. And then it helps us realize that where we are right now, is with the light having come, but with darkness still here, with, with evil still around us. And then the fourth thing, it, it helps us celebrate and long for, much like the Israelites, Jesus' second coming, his return, the consummation of his work of salvation. So where we are, where we're situated, there, there's still going to be some, some trials, there's still going to be evil. And in fact, that's what what Paul's going to say to them. Watch the commands here. Watch the Advent commands. Okay. The the commands for those who find themselves in the story of God, locate where they are. Here's what Paul says to these church leaders. 28, pay careful attention. Open your eyes up, open your ears, look around you, look at yourself, know what's happening in the world. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves, to the flock, to the church in which the Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, the ecclesia of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know after my departure what fierce wolves will come in among you. Because that's where we are in the story. And I don't know if you've ever seen sheep and wolves interact. But one comes out on top, the other does not. Sheep cry out for a shepherd to come save them from these wolves. And they wait in dark nights when they hear the wolf's footsteps around them. And they hear the howls. And they wonder when the, the shepherd will show up. They wonder when he'll, he'll return. He says, the, the fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, see the command again, be alert. Pay attention. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. These are Advent commands. Long, expect, anticipate, be alert, pay attention. And now I commend you, verse 32, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Ah, uh, the Christmas saying. It's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> Quick Bible trivia, okay? What gospel is this saying from? Anyone know? It's only four. The answer? None of them. It's not in any of them, Okay. You're not going to find Jesus say this in Matthew. He's not going to say it in Mark. He's not going to say it in Luke. He's not going to say it in John. We don't have this. We have some parallels that are kind of similar. So if you have a cross-reference Bible, they'll put some verses in there. But if you go look them up, they're not the same verse. Not the same words. Not in the same order. There's one parallel in a Jewish text a couple hundred years before Jesus. But it's still not exact. There's not even in like the Apocryphal Gospels. So you realize there are more Gospels than just what are in our Bible. There are all these other Gospels that didn't get put in for good reasons. But, but not in any of these do you find this ever attributed to Jesus. Very, very interesting. Okay. Now, it obviously sounds like something Jesus would say. I mean, it's not hard to imagine this being as part of a, a Sermon on the Mount he gives to a group or a crowd. But it's just not in the Gospels we have. You're reminded probably of the end of John's Gospel where he says Jesus spoke and, and, and did so much work that if we were to write it all down, we'd run out of space to put the books. Right, there's more than what we have in our Gospels to the life of Jesus. And, and you get glimpses here and then of, oh, wow, hey, look at that. We have another saying. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You have to be careful, though, okay? So, like, because we often misquote Jesus, I think, and just attribute to him some common aphorisms of our own. Uh, so, like, God helps those who help themselves. Jesus said that. No, he didn't. Not in the Gospels, and he didn't say it, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not in the Gospels. But he did say it, okay? Thank you, Paul. Now, verse 36, When he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. For they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul has for years worked to get his churches to find themselves in the story of God's redemption. 
And he's found his own purpose in that story. And he said, with single-minded devotion, I want to fulfill that. And as he leaves his flock, never to see them again, he says, pay attention, be watchful, be expecting, know what's happening. Don't close your eyes to the wolves around you. Pretend it's not there. But don't close your eyes to the cross and the resurrection and the spirit. And pretend that's not there either. Know where you are. Know what's coming. Know what's gone before you. And the season of Advent places us in this period of waiting where we, we remember and we long, where we know where we are, where we don't have to ignore evils like children being shot. But neither do we have this, this God-is-dead approach to responding to evils such as that. I don't think in the scriptures you're ever going to find an explanation for evil. I don't think God's ever going to give you, at least in the scriptures, an answer for why things like what happened Friday are allowed. Why they're there. Why they happen. I think sometimes people go to the scriptures expecting to find such an answer, and they're disappointed, and they think the scriptures failed when they don't get one. Or when they contrive one and think, oh, that's really lame. The problem here is you can't say something failed to do something when it never tried to do that in the first place. What you're going to find in the scriptures is not an explanation for why those children are dead today. What you're going to find is God's reaction to evil. You're going to find God's heart, his posture, his plan to stopping and fixing and restoring that evil. I was reminded that, in particular in light of the events of this weekend, Jesus, the one we, we celebrate, was born into a child-killing world. Where he was a child who people were seeking to kill. God's reaction to the sorrow of the world is to be sorrowful. He takes on human form and lets the powers to be chase him for death. And he takes up their laments and their cries and their sorrows. And he mourns. He takes up the cry of humanity. He, he dies on the cross saying, why have you forsaken me? And he starts God's new creation. God's restoring of all things. So maybe, maybe we can celebrate Advent. And maybe we can, we can let Christmas come when Christmas comes. Maybe on the 24th we can, we can start Christmas and, and do Christmas right. But maybe today, particularly in, in, in light of, again, just what's happening around us, we, we remember that, that there's evil in the world. Remember, the correct response is not to ignore it. And the correct response is not to, to, to be paralyzed. But the correct response is to cry out. And to say as we pray in the, the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done. And the correspondence is to rejoice that the light has already broken into the darkness. And to look forward to a day when the sun is, is high. And there is no more darkness anymore. I want to end by reading Isaiah chapter 2 here. It's a prophecy of the, the kingdom coming. The kingdom come and the kingdom coming. This is the, the, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established to the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations will flow to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the Torah, instruction, God's wisdom, the law. And the word of Yahweh, the Lord, will will come from Jerusalem. He'll judge between nations. He'll decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One day there won't be semi-automatic weapons. And one day lost children won't have access to them. And smaller children won't be killed by them. A nation won't lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn war anymore. We long, we anticipate, we expect. Like the Israelites here in Isaiah, with the threat of of the Neo-Assyrian Empire raining down on them, destruction, total war. They long for this day. And like us, experiencing evil and mourning, we long for this day. And then watch the conclusion of this poem here. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, God's people, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's follow him. Let's be shaped by him. Let's, let's give witness, give testimony to the work that God has begun, is doing, and will one day complete among us. Let's pray together. Father, we, we give thanks for your scriptures. We give thanks for the word incarnate for your, your son and his ministry and, and his death and resurrection. And, and again, Father, we give thanks for the spirit. You've given to us, we, we pray that we would be ever more receptive to his leading, to his transformation in our lives. We pray that that you would give us a, a season of Advent, that we'd be able to sit in darkness for just a little bit so we can properly celebrate the light and properly long for the light. We thank you for your, your, your reaction to our plight that you came and, 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 and decidedly from Genesis 12 said, I am going to find you and save you and make you my people. I'll be your God. And so we praise you because we've we found ourselves in that story. As crazy it may seem, as, as, as broken as sometimes we are, that's, that's, that's where we are. We're here. We're worshiping. We're invited to the table. And so we give praise to you. And we, we ask for your, your second coming, Father. And it's in, in your son's name that all God's people pray.